What is mankind's greatest problem? What would you say? Don't answer out loud, please. But I found a guy on the internet by the name of Nick Bostrom, who is an Oxford philosopher, and he gave a lecture on humanity's greatest problems. As far as I know, the guy is an unbeliever. Uh, He's never put his faith in Christ, as far as I can tell. And so here are his top three problems for humanity. Number one is death. (laughs) Death. Uh, There's something like 56 million people dying every year in the world. 56 million. So he puts death number one. It's funny how people are so uh, caught up in number two. Human extinction. Human extinction. That's need to read their Bibles, don't they? It's, uh, they would know that's not an issue. And then number three, life is not usually as wonderful as it could be. I don't need to comment on these. I'm not going to comment on them. But anyway, there was I did a quick search on the Internet for some other ones that other people were saying. And here's some of the other things they were saying. Just, just so you know what they are. They said apathy global warming, politics, terrorism, famine, the world economy, or this huge debt crisis that is a mess. But anyway, the last one was, our greatest problems exist outside of us. found that in several places. Yeah, so your greatest problem exists outside of you. Did you know that? Well, actually, God says our greatest problem is inside of us (laughs) that's what god says your greatest problem is inside you and the bible calls your greatest problem sin it's kind of weird when i have to define sin but that's the day we live in what is sin my favorite definition comes from the bible itself in first john 3 verse 4 the bible says sin is lawlessness then you've got to ask a question when you see that verse. Okay, whose law are we breaking when we sin? Because all it says is lawlessness is sin. Well, guess what? You're breaking God's law. You knew that. But sin is not only a failure to measure up to God's standard. He, he is the standard. When you don't measure up to Him, of course, that's sin. But we also need to recognize sin is disobedience to God. In other words, it's not just what you do, but it can also be what you don't do. Okay, uh, Romans 3.23 this says that sin is when you come short of the glory of God. Again, God being the standard, I don't measure up to Him. No one does, except Jesus, who is God. And therefore, sin is coming short of Him and His holiness, His standard. So sin is far more than missing the right mark. So whatever that target is, of course it's God. If we don't we don't if we miss that, then we have sin, but it's also hitting the wrong mark. In other words, sin involves more than just a passive omission of what is good and right. It's also a positive commission of what is bad and we ought not to do. Does that make sense? Uh, I hope that helps. Now as we come to Genesis chapter 3 here today, we have a tragedy that is beyond words. Uh, We have reached some glorious heights in Genesis 1 and 2. But here we see that man's relationship to his creator God was completely severed. It is completely severed. and, And we see the course of human history is radically altered because of sin. Humanity asserted itself against deity. And as a result, the whole human race is is just plunged over the cliff of sin. It's a disaster. And it's not possible to compute the trauma and all of the tragedy which have invaded our world because of this catastrophe here in Genesis 3. The misery which sin has brought is beyond my puny mind to even comprehend. So if people want to know where did evil come from, why is there evil in the world, why is this world such a mess, we need to read and understand Genesis 3. 
Because there, there's no understanding the rest of your Bible. If you took, if you ripped out that page, don't don't do that, please. But if you did, ripped out Genesis three out of your Bible, try to read the Bible and make sense of it without this chapter. It, it, you wouldn't be able to understand it. And so if we go wrong here, we're going to err in our interpretation of the rest of the Word of God. And so if by the Spirit of God we can somehow grasp the message of Genesis 3, we're not going to greatly err when it comes to the rest of the book. Well, this much is evident. If, if Genesis 3 is true, and it is, then both the scientists and the sociologists of our day have to be wrong. They have to be wrong. They have to be. The, the evolutionary scientists tell us that man is just very s- slowly, surely evolving into this perfect being. Right? So, so we've gone from the, the goo and the ooze, you know, and you, they're just slowly, each life form's getting better and better and better, and eventually you're going to be perfect. That's what they're telling us. God tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 that he made, he made us perfect. There was no evil at this point. In fact, he said it was all very good when he had finished, right? And we see in here that man's actually ruined himself. God tells us he made man very high, but we see man has fallen very, very low. The sociologists, the psychologists, the educators of our world, and the philosophers are telling us, and they've been telling us this for hundreds of years, that man's problem is what? You know what they say? It's it's not your fault. It's your environment. That's your problem. Your greatest problem is your environment. And that's why you do bad things. And so if you're in a perfect environment, you're not going to sin. Right? You're not going to do these bad things. Really? Well, the Bible shows us otherwise, right? God puts man in a perfect environment, and what do they do? They sin. So that can't be true. God, in fact, tells us our problem is our heart. Genesis 3 explains the condition of the universe, and also helpfully gives us the state of humanity here. It explains why our world has so many problems. It explains our human dilemma. It explains why you need a Savior. It explains what God is actually doing in history, because history is His story. In other words, the truth revealed in Genesis 3 is this very necessary foundation for a true and accurate worldview. Every worldview that lacks the foundation here that we see in the Bible is is going to be hopelessly wrong. Hopelessly wrong. And that's why evolution offers no explanation for the human dilemma, offers no explanation for evil, much less any solution. And so we need to go to the Bible to find the answers. Fortunately, God has given us the answers. So let's start reading here in Genesis 3, verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We'll stop there for today. We see, first of all, in this text, 
Genesis 3 shows us the great power and subtlety of Satan. The great power and subtlety of Satan. See, here Satan appears for the very first time in our Bible. Well, at least how it's laid out for us, right? And some of you might be looking at Genesis 3 verse 1 and saying, how do I know that that snake, that serpent, is Satan? How do I know that? Here's where cross-references are helpful. Okay, Scripture helps us to interpret Scripture. Important rule of hermeneutics. So here it is. Revelation 12 verse 9 says, The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So Revelation 12 verse 9 interprets that serpent for us. Yes, I believe it was a real snake, but who's behind the snake, if you will? Who's influencing that snake to to do this? It's that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Same person, by the way, just different names. Devil and Satan, same person. So, it just says he's there in chapter 3, verse 1. Now now the serpent, there he is. Where did he come from? Where did Satan come from? Because, right, Uh, I mean, did God create him? Did God create evil? Well, few people would maintain that God could or did create evil. But if not, where did evil come from? (laughs) Good question. Well, in the prophets, of your Bible, that is, we learn of Satan's prior existence. We, We see his original glory, the way God originally made him. We see his terrible fall. So I want to introduce you to Satan. Where did he come from? Who is he? Let's start by looking at Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, if you go past your Psalms, Proverbs, keep going, you'll get to one of those major prophets of Ezekiel. It's after Lamentations. In Ezekiel chapter 28, please turn to chapter 28, we see that Satan originally was, well, he still is, he's an angel, okay? He still is an angel, but he fell when he was lifted up with pride. So the original sin here was pride. So let's start reading Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Ezekiel 28, verse 12 says, The Son of Man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. From the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub I placed you you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you in the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before the kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now some people will read this text, look at verse 11 and 12 there and say, well, how do I know that's talking about Satan? I mean, because it mentions this king of Tyre. Well, if you look at the context and what it's just been talking about, you you see it's a prophetic message from God to Satan. How do we know it's Satan? Well, look at verse 13. 
Because verse 13, the text identifies here the object of God's condemnation as someone who was in Eden, the garden of God. Well, it's obviously not the king of Tyre. (laughs) So the someone there, according to verse 14, well, it's an angel. An angel. In fact, it's a guardian cherub, specifically. Notice that he was created perfect with no sin. That can't be the king of Tyre. So how sin arose in him was was not explained here. Uh, but where that sin originated should be clear to us. Notice verse 15. It says that this iniquity, this sin was found in you, God says. So it was not a defect in Satan. Sin was a choice that Satan made against God. There's another passage that sheds a little bit more light here for us on Satan's fold. Turn over to another major prophet, to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 gives us some more light to understand what happened to This angel who used to be called Lucifer, who became Satan. So let's read Isaiah 14, verse 12. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pits. I emphasize the word on purpose to get the point across. Where did sin originate here? According to Isaiah 14. Sin first found its expression, not with Adam and Eve, but in fact we we see it's first of all expressed with the angels. The angels. This is Lucifer here. God created Lucifer, and Lucifer sinned first. His first sin was pride, wasn't it? He had an eye problem, which no eye doctor could fix. He said, what, five times, I, 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 I. That's his problem, pride. He had a desire to be like God. And so when he sinned, many of those angels joined Lucifer in sin. I think the Bible says, what, about 33%. A third of the angels went with him, and they followed in, in Satan's rebellion against God. And that is how sin entered the universe. So you need to have that little background here as we come to Genesis 3, because... Everything's been very good up to this point, hasn't it? Now, my friends, I can't begin to use language that is strong enough to describe the deceit, the subtlety, and the power of Satan. Satan is one of the enemies of every Christian. You need to understand he is too wise for you to outwit him. That is without divine wisdom. Praise God, you have been given God's wisdom to outwit him. And you need to understand, he's been around since a long time, hasn't he? (laughs) The Garden of Eden. He's way older than Adam. Adam lived to be, what, 930, and so he's been around like approximately 6,000 years. He's got a lot of experience under his belt. He's learned a lot of things. And he is very powerful... In fact, he's too powerful for you to overcome without Christ. You cannot engage him in your own strength. He is too subtle for us to recognize him apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. He, uh, he is very deceitful. You need to recognize it. Very subtle. But in this chapter here, the, the, the Lord reveals three things to us about Satan which are very helpful to me. And I hope you'll find them helpful. So be wise and understand what the scripture says so turn back to genesis 3 and here here's three 
things that are revealed to us about Satan from Genesis 3. Number one, the sphere of Satan's activity is in the spiritual, religious realm. So contrary to popular opinion, my friends, it is not Satan, but the natural depravity of your human heart that leads men and women into sin. The Bible says that's what leads us into adultery, fornication, blasphemy, drunkenness, witchcraft, and other sins. You don't believe me? Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come... Notice it's not your environment. It's not your environment. You can't blame your sin on your environment. What did God say? Jesus said it is from within, and they defile a person. So Satan's chief aim is to get between you and God. He he is seeking to keep us from our Creator. He wants to keep us from having... a. Uh, this this beautiful fellowship with our God. And so his goal is to keep you from trusting in Christ. And the way he, he does that is often by, oh, through your pride. Just, just, like he, just like Lucifer. He wants to build your self-esteem. He wants you to follow your heart. Sh- shall I keep going with all these unbiblical slogans that our world uses all the time, right? You know, we got so many mottos and slogans. You know, have it your way. There's another one. Uh, the the A and Z commercial, their bank. You know, their. Uh, you know, it, it's your world, your way. Really? No, there's so many unbiblical slogans out there, and that's those are just some of the lies that Satan's throwing at you. He wants you to have confidence in yourself. He's seeking to usurp God's place in your life in your life sorry he, he he wants God's creatures to worship basically themselves he's quite happy for you to worship yourself his work consists of substituting his lies for God's truth and so you need to beware of this my friends so you're going to find Satan at work and it's surprising where you will find Satan at work. You will find him at work in churches. You might even find Satan at work behind a pulpit like this, using a preacher to preach. He may even use an author to write a so-called Christian book or to give a Christian blog on the Internet. You will find Satan at work in seminaries teaching pastors to not trust God's Word. He might even be be involved in religious activities. This is some of the ways that Satan is at work, and you need to be aware of his methods and his activity. Number two, the method of Satan's approach to our souls is the perversion of Scripture and the appeals to your flesh. I'll give you some examples from right here. We see, first of all, I'm just going to throw these out real quick, and I'll go in more depth later, okay? First of all, what does he do? First thing in verse 1, he throws doubt upon God's Word. He wants you to doubt God's Word, because notice what he does here. Verse 1. What did he say to the woman who was Eve? He said, did God actually say? (laughs) And then in verse 4, he substituted his Word for God's Word. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I'll show you why that's not true in a moment. Uh, We see third, he cast a slur upon who God is. His very attributes are attacked here by Satan. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He appeals to our flesh in verse 5 as well. So he uses the the three main types of sin. So he he appeals to our bodily senses through our eyes. He he appeals to our fleshly emotions through our desires. 
he appeals to our intellect when he says, oh, if you do this, it will make you wise. Then he appeals to our pride in verse 5 when he says, you will be like God. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? You want to be like God? That's what he's telling you. However, Satan, you say, well, man, he seems to be getting away with a lot of rubbish here. Oh, no. <laughs> he's not going to get away with it, my friends. When we get to this verse, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on this some more. But look at verse 15. Just so you know, he doesn't get away with it because we see that Satan will be destroyed by God. Verse 15 says, as God gives his, his curse here, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is that all about? (laughs) Quick synopsis for you. In this verse here, God turns to this lying seducer named Satan and he curses him. This is what some have called the first gospel. It's a prophecy, if you will, of something that's going to come. It talks about the struggle and the outcome between Satan's seed, who are the unbelievers, and the woman's seed, who is Christ. So praise God, right here in the midst of maybe the worst chapter in your entire Bible, this terrible curse passage here, we have a message of hope that is shining forth and through the darkness. We, we see that Christ would one day defeat Satan. Satan would, yes, he would bruise Christ's heel. In other words, when Christ was on the cross, Christ suffered. But it wasn't a fatal blow. He just suffered. Christ arose from the grave. And he conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. And he bruised or he crushed Satan's head. In other words, he gave him a fatal blow. One day we know, according to the book of Revelation, that Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So how did Christ do this? How does he destroy Satan? Well, he conquered Satan through his death and resurrection. Praise God. But Genesis 3 here describes the fall of mankind. The fall of mankind. I want to park here for a little bit now. We've already read the passage. We see what happens. Man is not an independent, self-governing creature. He has a creator. Because obviously he didn't create himself, therefore he has a creator. He owes his entire being to God. Man was made to serve God. Man was made to glorify the creator. He, He was made to obey this creator. And as a symbol of God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility, we saw in chapter 2, God puts one restriction on man. He puts one tree in the midst of the garden, and he says, don't eat of that tree. So he plants that tree right there in the midst of the garden. He has all this stuff he can do. There's one little tree he can't eat from. The only restriction placed upon man's liberty here was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this tree symbolized this relationship in which man stands before his God. Adam was created as a very intelligent, uh, responsible creature who is, of course, subject to God's rule. He's subject to the Creator. But soon, what does he do here? He, he's, he's self-seeking. He's self-willed. He's self-centered. He's self-serving in his rebellion against God. And some of us read this chapter and we just scratch our heads and say, Wow, how did this happen? How could this happen? Well, there's three things that you need to understand to understand how this happened. Number one, several points I'll bring out, but uh, number one, you need to understand that Satan tempted and deceived our mother Eve. Satan tempted and deceived our mother Eve. Satan knew how God created Adam. He knew how he had made Eve from one of Adam's ribs. He knew that Eve was the weaker vessel. He knew Adam's love for Eve. He he knows a lot of stuff. He's not all-knowing, but he can can observe things, and so the things he sees with his eyes he knows. 
So what does he do here? He sets his sights on Eve. And he knew if he could get Eve to sin, Adam should follow. And so with great subtlety, what does he do? This, this old serpent deceived the woman. And then as a result of that, all mankind suffered the consequences and fell. So let me give you some steps that led to her ruin. These are very applicable to us, by the way, because you'll find some of the same things, same tactics that Satan's going to use to attack you. He's going to try to bring you down, and when he does bring you down, you're going to see these very things. Number one, we see that Satan disguised himself. Satan disguised himself. Notice verse 1 just says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then, then what does he do? He starts speaking to the woman. And notice the woman doesn't run for her life. <laughs> right? She starts a conversation with the serpent. So don't expect Satan to come looking like, I got that off a Satanist blog, off the internet, by the way, that picture up there, a Satanist blog. Don't expect Satan to come looking like that, like, like some man in some red suit that has horns and a pitchfork, pitchfork and a tail. That's not how you're going to see Satan. Well, you'll probably never see him, but you understand what I'm saying? That's often how the world portrays him. We need to remember, in 2 Corinthians, the Bible says that Satan is an angel of light. He's an angel of light. He's going to look good. He's going to have a smile on his face, twinkle in his eyes. He's going to look nice, attractive, speaking nice words, most likely. So he disguises himself because you're probably not going to fall for that scary-looking creature up there, are you? Probably not. We also see that Satan, here's his approach. What's the first thing he does? He starts talking to Eve. He questions God's word. That's what he did. Verse 1, he says, did God actually say? So you ask a question. Did God actually say? Now notice Satan's tactics here. He begins with something that sounds like just an, an, an innocent question. He's trying to come across like he's a really nice guy. He's, he's, he's actually interested in Eve, and he wants Eve's well-being here, right? Well, that's, that's the impression he's trying to give. But notice Satan's question was not innocent, because that's not the full question, is it? His question here was actually wickedly designed to start Eve on this path of doubting God and distrusting what God had said. Just, just get her on the path, and then, then, then I can keep leading her. That's what he's trying to do. And so the essence, my friends, of all temptation is to cast doubt on God's Word, to subject it to our human judgment. You start on that path, it doesn't end well. And so, my friends, we need to beware, because that, that is what exa exactly what Satan has been doing for thousands of years. It's the same thing he tried doing with everybody since then. It's the same thing he's trying to do to you. And so here's a lesson for us to be learned, my friends. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. If you know your Bible, can Satan cast any doubt on God's Word? If you know the truth, then Satan shouldn't be able to get you to doubt that truth. Know your Bible. Study the Scripture so that you're going to have the answers. Because Satan's going to do this. He's going to ask you questions, try to get you to doubt. But if you already know the truth, you have the answers, you'll have that solid foundation in place. Third thing that Satan does here is he, is he distorts God's Word. Satan distorted God's word. Because notice what he says. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, if you've been listening closely to the previous chapter, you know God hadn't said that exactly. In fact, he, he said that Adam and Eve could eat from how many trees? He said, you, you may eat of all the trees of the garden except one. Unless you forget what he said, go back to chapter 2, verse 16. 
I want you to remind you what God actually said, and then you can see the difference in what Satan says. So look at chapter 2, verse 16. He, uh, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So can you see how Satan operates here? He twists what God had already said. He takes one small restriction that God did say, and then he places that... Oh, by the way, why, why did God say that? God had originally said that for our own good, by the way. He does everything for His glory and our good, just like He did here. He gives them one small restriction for our good. And then Satan takes God, and he tries to turn him into some killjoy. <laughs> uh, make God out to be some spoil sport. You know, God just doesn't want you to have fun. So he, so Satan will think, say things like, well, you know, God's always trying to spoil your fun. I mean, what's the matter with looking at just a little bit of pornography? I mean, after all, it's just you in the picture. You're not actually hurting anyone. Or Satan might say, well, why does God care what you do with your money? It's your money. Uh, God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. So just... Spend the money however you want. You see how he does that? So in the face of such lies, my friends, we need to remember that our God is good. And he's always good. And it doesn't matter how the devil tries to paint him. God is always good. The fourth thing we see here is that Eve heeded the tempter. So, Satan has disguised himself, he's, he's questioned God's word, he's distorted God's word. What should Eve have done? Well, verse 2 says that the woman said to the serpent. So what's she doing? She's having a conversation with the serpent. Instead of telling the serpent to, what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Maybe that would probably a better conversation to have. Oh, no, Eve's quietly listening as the wicked one assaults her. He's assaulting the Word of God, which is really an attack against God, isn't it? But what's happening here? Slowly, the door is being opened, and she's beginning to discuss and debate what God has already revealed. What should she have done? Maybe some better advice is to follow what the Apostle James says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what James says to do. In other words, you don't entertain lies. You don't entertain anyone or anything that is causing doubt upon God's Word. Just don't entertain it. Don't give it any space in your mind. Resist it. And then we see in verse 3 that Eve made additions to God's Word. She made additions to God's word in verse 3 because it says, uh, she, um, But God said, You shall not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? This is serious stuff. Uh, tampering with God's word is something fatal. By the way, it's just as evil to add to God's Word as it is to subtract to God's Word. They're both evil. They're both wrong. But what does Eve do here? She says, in verse 3, she says, Neither shall you touch it. Now we read, we just read what God had said in chapter 2. God never said, Neither shall you touch it. So what has she just done? She has added to God's Word. God said, Don't eat it. And so, there's a lot of lessons we can learn here. But one of the things, my friends, is simply don't add to the Bible. Don't add to the Bible. The Bible doesn't need your help. God doesn't need your help. In fact, the Bible, the Bible shows us that the Word is sufficient. It is sufficient. It is powerful. It's what you need. 
But then Eve altered God's word in verse 3. Because God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what chapter 2, verse 17 says. But notice what Eve says. She says, lest you die. The idea is here, or we might die. No, God didn't say you might die. God says you will surely die if you eat out of that tree. And so this is an altering of God's word. Next we see that Satan denied God's authority. He's getting more bolder here, isn't he? Look at verse 4. He says that the the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die. In other words, Satan tells us, Hey, sin, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, okay, God said don't eat from that tree, but come on, Eve. Do you really think he's going to kill you over just eating some fruit? I mean, go ahead, enjoy it. You know what God's like, right? God is love. And and when you know, if you if you do something wrong, God's gonna forgive you anyway, right? So just go ahead and eat. You ever heard the whisper of the snake in your ear? You ever heard that? Oh, just go ahead and sin. Just a little sin. Doesn't matter. You're not gonna hurt anybody. Besides, God's love, He's gonna forgive you anyway. My friend, don't believe the lie. Remember, Satan is a liar. Jesus described him as a liar from the beginning. In fact, he's called the father of lies. And we need to remember as well that God hates sin. And he says the wages of sin is death. Number eight, we see that Satan then attacks God's goodness. He attacks God's goodness in verse five. He says, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. Is there any element of truth to Satan's statement there? Yeah, there is a little bit of element of truth to that. There, Adam and Eve, who, by the way, had never known evil, sin up to this point, would surely know it now. You do this, you're going to know it. But do you see what Satan was doing here? He's convincing Eve that sin would... Enable a liberation. You do this and you will be self-actualized. Wow, that's a buzzword. I learned that in general psychology in university. Maslow's hierarchical rubbish is what it was. <laughs> right? You, that, that's the ultimate goal. Become self-actualized. Disney puts it this way. Follow your heart. And you know what? Whatever the term is, the term hasn't gone away. The lie hasn't gone away. He's still selling the same old lie. Satan's saying, go ahead, separate from your wife. Get divorced. Be free. That's an example of self-actualization. Satan's saying, go ahead, take out your frustration. I mean, punch the wall. Punch that dude in the face. You're going to feel better if you take out your frustration. Or, uh, you know, Satan will say, go ahead, vent your anger toward God, whatever that looks like. I mean, uh, after all, it might actually purify your, your conscience and your mind and your heart. Just vent. All lies. Bunch of lies. I mean, think about it. Does sin ever make anyone free? No way. Never makes anybody free. Adam and Eve, they were promised freedom, promised liberation. What did they get in exchange? Shame, guilt. As usual, what does Satan do? He overpromises and underdelivers. He overpromises and underdelivers. So Satan attacks God's goodness here, and then we see Eve was tempted by the lust of the flesh. She sees that fruit. She sees something that's pleasurable to her. Notice verse 6 says, what what does it say about the fruit? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Mm. It was pleasurable. We call that the lust of the flesh. And so she, she looks at that fruit. Oh, there's all kinds of conjecture out there. What is the fruit? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But for Eve, she looks at it, 
At this point, there's no curse in the, in the universe. It must have been wonderful to behold. It was, it was good to look at. It must have tasted good. And so she looks at that and says, oh, I want it. We also see that Eve was tempted by the lust of the eyes in verse 6. Because not only was the tree good for food, but it, the Bible specifically says it was a delight to the eyes. Somehow it looked good. Her eyes looks at this. And says, oh man, that's amazing. I'd really like to have that. And then Eve was tempted by the pride of life. We're often tempted by significance. We, we have an identity crisis. We, have, we, we find our identity in our position in life. And so Eve looks at this, and notice verse 6 says, it does, this is something that desires to make one wise. And Satan keeps using the same old temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And how did Eve respond in verse 6? The Bible says that she rebelled against God. Because look at verse 6. The Bible says she took the fruit. She took the fruit. How did this all begin? Let me remind you how this all began. She began by questioning God's Word, and then soon disregarded God's Word. And by the way, this is the way the sin entered into the world. I like the way A.W. Pink said it. He said, the will of God was resisted, the word of God was rejected, and the way of God was deserted. End quote. So Satan was used. He was in in Eden. What does he do here? He uses things that are legitimate drives to fill illegitimate purposes. Is it... What I'm trying to say, my friends, is it wrong to eat? No, it's not wrong to eat. That's a legitimate, God-given desire. But God said, don't eat of that tree. And so what Satan does, he takes God's blessings, and then he tempts us to do things or not do things that are actually contrary to God's principles. So let me explain what temptation is, okay? You understand it's not a sin. Hopefully you understand it's not a sin to be tempted Even Jesus Christ was tempted in Matthew chapter 4 when he was in the wilderness. He got the same temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, but he resisted. He resisted. So temptation, here's a working definition that I have, is that it's an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Let me give you an example. Sex is a God-designed thing. Sex is... Good. God designed it. But what happens is, is there's such a thing called premarital sex, and that becomes sin. Uh, there's other things called extramarital sex outside of your spouse, and that is also sin. Why is that a sin when God made it, He designed it, and He said it was good? Well, sex is a... The problem is, is it becomes sin when you fulfill that desire, which is a legitimate thing, and you do it in illegitimate ways. Does that make sense? So, yes, sex is a God-given drive, but it must be filled through legitimate means. By the way, think about Satan's deception here. Eve, what did she have? Was she really missing anything in her life? Was she empty? I mean, she's perfect, right? She's got all this pleasure... She's got all these possessions, an entire garden and animals and everything else in it, right? She's got this beautiful position that God has given to her. She's to have dominion over it all. She had it all, except one tree. And Satan comes and somehow deceives her into thinking that, well, no, actually you don't have it all. <laughs> you know, you, you could be better here. So look at, I want you to see there's four visible steps that Eve takes here in verse 6. Four visible steps she takes. Most likely, these are going to be the same steps that you will take if you fall into sin. Number one, she saw. She saw. So before she eats, notice what happens in verse 6. Verse 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. 
you saw it. This is important because what you see with your eye gate can become very, very important. Uh, we, We see this over and over in Scripture, don't we? People sinning because it starts with them seeing something. They're tempted because of what they saw. But it didn't end there. Notice it says, She saw the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What does she do next? The Bible says she took. She took of its fruit and ate. So you need to to be reminded of this, my friends, because when we lose the battle inside, internally, it's only a matter of time when you're going to lose the battle externally. So it starts inside you. One way to get our values right is that we need to see the end. We need to see some consequences of our sin. May I suggest you meditate upon consequences of sin. It might really help keep you. It's, we, we do this. Isn't this what our government does? Because the government can't change your heart, so they just give you consequences for your sin. Right? You do this, you get a fine. You do this, you get demerit points. You do, do this, you might go to jail. Right? That's the sort of things, right? There's, there's consequences for sin. We need to think about consequences. She wasn't doing this at this point. And the next thing we see is that she ate. She took, she ate, and then it gets even worse. She gave to her husband, Adam. (laughs) And this is another important lesson we need to learn, is that we don't sin in a vacuum. And I don't mean the one that sucks the dirt off your floor. Okay. The point is, no man is an island. God has fashioned the woman here to... Be the husband's complement, to be his helper. Is he helping? Is she helping? No way. So what does Satan do? He, he manipulates the woman to actually betraying her husband. Sad. And so the Bible says Eve was deceived. The Bible also says Adam was not deceived. Adam takes of the fruit. Did you see that at the end of verse 6? Because it says that She gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 2, you'll find Adam knew what he was doing, but the Bible says Eve was deceived. And so Adam willfully, deliberately rebelled against God's command. God had originally given him the command. He was supposed to tell his wife what God's command was. And so, what does he do? He sins willfully and defies God. Well, last we see that, what's the result here? When Adam sinned against God, we all became sinners and died spiritually. Not physically, but spiritually. The Bible says we are separated from God as a result of our sin. You are born into sin, if you will. You're born with a sin nature. Uh, The Bible calls that the flesh. And as a result, you're separated from God. The Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 5 that Adam was a representative head of the human race. He was your representative. He was your covenant head. He represented the entire human race. And you say, well, I didn't sin in the garden, so why do I get a sin nature along with everybody else? That's why. Because your father Adam sinned. And as a result, we all fall through that because of father Adam. And for this truth, we can be thankful. You say, what? That's not what I expected you to say. I can be thankful for Father Adam sinning? Bear with me a moment, okay? Here's the way Martin Luther put it in a hymn. Martin Luther wrote a hymn called, O Blessed Fall. (laughs) I was shocked when I heard it too. But anyway, here's some of the things he says. He says, had there been no fall there would have always been the possibility of one. So we can all sit here really smug and say, Adam, you're an idiot. I would have never done that. Oh, really? (laughs) No, you probably would have. Martin Luther goes on to say, well, had there been no fall, there would never have, we could never have known the wonders and beauty of redeeming love and saving grace. Think about it. That's, that's one of the things the, the, the perfect holy angels, they, they look at the church and they marvel at what God is doing they, because they don't fully understand it. 
They've never experienced that like I have. Hopefully you have. Well, the hymn says something like this, that had there been no fall, we could never have been brought into union with God in Christ, who is the God-man. Wow, union with Christ. I would never experience, think about that. You would never experience that if there was no fall. So, if you're a Christian, you're going to die and go to heaven one day, you're going to experience something that even the angels can't. You're going to have this special union with Christ. (laughs) Oh, mind-boggling. The hymn goes on to say that since we fell by a representative, there is hope that we might rise again by a capital R representative. And Hebrews tells us that capital R representative is Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam. And so, my friends, please note, the fall of Adam was not an accident. That that was not plan B or C on God's part. That was the plan. Read Psalm 76, verse 10. So, here, here's, how, here's how some people try to explain this, right? Either God could have prevented it, or He could not, right? Is that the only options? God could have prevented the fall of mankind into sin, or He could not. If He couldn't, then is He still God? No. And this, this what does that make of the Bible, by the way? If God could have and He didn't, or He couldn't, not able to stop it. What does that make God? What does it make of the Bible? Think about it. God's not God. This book we have is just a myth. And and think about it. If God could have stopped the fall, but would not, then it came to pass according to His will. But somehow, God is not responsible for sin. He is outside sin. He's not able to sin. James says God doesn't cause anyone to sin, he doesn't tempt people to sin. So Adam and Eve and Satan, they sinned on their own. They chose to do this. And so, as we look at this disaster here, I just want, I just want to end with a good note, okay? Because this is depressing in many ways, isn't it? May I remind you, you have a second Adam. And we need to praise God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who experienced the same temptations that Adam and Eve experienced. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life but he didn't succumb to Satan's temptation. He triumphed over Satan. He lived the perfect life in your place. He died victoriously, and when he died, he said, hmm, what did he say? It is finished. Right? That's what he said. It is finished. He did exactly what he came to accomplish. He fulfilled the mission, and so Jesus rested everything on God's good word and also on the good God of the Word. My friends, that's the answer. May God enable you and me to be like Christ, to rest on God's good Word and on the good God of the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this depressing passage that You've given to us helps us to understand where sin came from, where did Satan come from, and why is this world such a mess. We understand what the mankind's greatest problem is. But may we also understand what is the solution to our problem. May we not lose sight of Christ in the midst of this horror. May we not be smug, and proud, and arrogant, self-righteous here. But may this humble us. May we recognize who we are, that we are sinners by choice and birth. But may we also recognize that there is one greater than us, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who is greater than everything, who never sinned, who lived the perfect life, overcame temptation and the tempter to die the perfect death and rise again from the dead. We're thankful for that great victory. And he could honestly say that the mission was accomplished. It is finished. Death has been conquered. Satan has been conquered. 
our own sin nature has been conquered. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. May we not lose sight of Christ in this dark world that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.